0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. State and county officials, along with our medical and business community, have been working to battle this pandemic. They're trying to find the best way to respond to save lives and deal with this economic crisis. Not everyone agrees on the best way forward. But now that the plan appears to be holding off on welcoming Trans-Pacific flights, at least until September, We reached back out to Dr. Jim Ireland. He's a community physician and medical director of the Aircraft Rescue and Firefighters Division at the state's airports. We talked to him yesterday afternoon about ways to strengthen our defenses. We learned he is looking at repurposed medical equipment originally used to uh, screen flu that may be helpful in our fight against COVID.
1: The airport is still with the National Guard and the firefighters doing temperature scans of everybody landing here and people with a fever Or symptoms of COVID are being swabbed. And we did catch a patient um, recently that um, had a fever, but no other symptoms. And he was COVID positive. He was a resident returning from Arkansas. And that screening at the airport, that swab allowed us to put him into quarantine and alert the health department that he was infected. So we're still doing that, the temperature screenings and the swabbings as necessary. But the airport is in the process of putting in temperature screeners that can do this um, in an automated fashion so you don't have to have individuals um, doing temperature screens. Because, you know, right now you can see the reports from the Department of Transportation and the tourism folks where arrivals are maybe 10% of what they are normally um, or less. And so it's very manageable with kind of manual screening. But once we get a more robust tourist response to when the state does open up, you know, we talking about thirty or 35,000 visitors a day, an automated process for temperature screening will make it a lot easier.
0: Do you have a sense as to when we're going to get those thermal screeners?
1: They're um, going through the procedures now to test different models and right directly in the process of selecting, and that's actually moving forward now. So that's all happening kind of as we speak.
0: And Dr. Uh, Scott Miskovich mentioned that he had uh, a number of machines that he got, oh, and I think has been using for the last two or three weeks. And he mentioned that he shared a couple of them with you so that you could use them at the airport in case somebody with symptoms walks off the plane.
1: Yes. And the machine he's talking about is called Quidel. And it's a machine called, it's a company called Quidel. It's a Sophia machine. And these are machines that have been around for a while. They've been in doctor's offices for a number of years and traditionally have been used to test for flu, influenza, right in the doctor's office. So they can swab you and in 15 minutes know if you have the flu or not. Well, these machines have been re- kind of recalibrated and the cartridges made specifically for COVID-19. Now, these same machines that doctors have been using for many years can be used for COVID. So he got a number of machines. He loaned me two of them. Um, I also know um, a doctor on Maui who has uh, six machines there, and there's some others scattered throughout the state. Um, But I have been using them to test for COVID. But right now I'm using them um, more just to get familiarized with the machine, see how it works, how the results get tested, uh, come back. I have not used it clinically um, at all. And right now, from the health department standpoint, a, a PCR test is the way that they prefer to detect the um, COVID virus. And so currently at the airport, there's a paramedic at Honolulu International Airport and EMTs user paramedics at the other airports throughout the state that can do a traditional swab using the PCR technology that can go to the Hawaii State Laboratory to detect COVID. So just to be clear, all the airports are using the traditional Uh, PCR swab. The machine that Dr. Miskovich loaned me, we are not currently using that at the airport per se, but that is a machine that maybe could be used in certain clinical applications going forward. Maybe not at the airport, but perhaps for other businesses. Now, the difference between the two, and kind of in a nutshell, the PCR test, the traditional test that we're using at the state lab and other labs, is a deep nasopharyngeal swab. It goes all the way through your nose to the back of your throat, It checks for RNA from the virus. So you're actually looking for the presence of the virus. It's an antigen test. It takes about four to six hours to run the test. So typically, you'll get results back either the same day or the next day. And the cost of that test, you do it in a commercial lab, is about $125 or maybe a little more. And that's the gold standard. The new machine by Quiddell, small machine, it'll fit in a shoebox. So it detects a protein from the virus, not the RNA. But again, it's an antigen test looking for the presence of the virus. It's also a nasal swab, but instead of a deep nasal pharyngeal swab, it can also be a shallow nasal swab. So having had both done on myself, I can tell you the shallow nasal swab where the Q-tip only goes in an inch or so is more comfortable than the deep one. Now, this test by Quidel runs maybe $25 for the test as opposed to $125 for the PCR test. So it is about $100 cheaper, and the the result time is about 15 minutes. So you can get a result in 15 minutes versus four to six hours or longer you can actually get a result while the patient is, is right in front of you. Um, the other thing I like about the Quidel is it uses a different reagent and supplies as compared to the traditional tests. So if you hear recently in the media where we've had a, not necessarily a shortage, but a reduction in the amount of supplies we have, and there's concern for if there's enough testing for Hawaii, because this uses different materials, we're not competing with the state lab or the other commercial labs for materials to do their standard COVID testing. So it offers all those benefits. now. That's all at the expense is that it's not as accurate as the PCR test. Now, the company publishes and reports a 93% accuracy. And I think as people do more tests with this machine, as it gets more widespread use, we will know if that number is accurate or if the accuracy is better or worse. And so it does have a potential role for screening in the future because of its cost, ease, and speed. And then how it will augment kind of the official type of testing remains to be seen But I do think it offers an opportunity, especially if small businesses or clinics want to do testing that's rapid and more widespread than kind of the formal swabbing. Um, So I do have two machines. I've I've tried them out informally, not to make clinical decisions, but just more to get used to how they work. Um, But I know there's a number of machines in the state, and, and we'll see how those will fit into kind of the overall response to COVID.
0: And Dr. Miskovich said that, yeah, they're more like in urgent care settings, but could be used at the airport. And if you've got somebody with full-blown sy- symptoms.
1: You know, I can foresee a, a lot of uses potentially for this machine. It could be in businesses, it could be in gyms, it could be in doctor's offices, you know, even in the back of an ambulance, because you know, when you get a test result in 15 minutes, that's something that a lot of different entities could potentially use with the proper training. So there's a lot of potentials for this and I think it will have a role in our COVID response statewide because part of the problem with isolating people who are infected is you need that information back as soon as possible. So for instance, if someone shows up to a gym sick or to a clinic sick or to a workplace sick, you want to swab them quickly and get an answer so you know what to tell kind of everybody else and who swab with respect to their contact so i think i think that it's going to have a role but its exact role i think we're still trying to define because again like i said that we've had this virus for six months and we're rapidly and by by me we i mean the medical community the health department the government try to figure out the best way and most robust way to respond to this in a way that protects human life but at the same time we can slowly go about all the things we're used to doing to maintain our economy very difficult decision weighing the safety of the community and opening up the economy and obviously you know i know one side the folks who work in hotels and restaurants these tourist-based businesses that day can't happen soon enough but at the same time we see record number of cases in places like california and florida and texas and overwhelming the hospitals and icus there and really, a strong concern for protecting health and safety of all the residents here, and you know our visitors who come here. So it's a very difficult kind of balance, and it's consistently, you know, left and right hands kind of weighing into what the right decision is. But again, as we learn more, and as we have more tools to um, screen people and isolate people. And at the same time, the hospital's getting better at taking care of people. You know, we all kind of move forward together.
0: Is it your personal opinion that that was a good decision to hold off for another 30 days? I don't want to second guess the governor. He has other
1: information that I don't have, but it surely will, you know, protect life and it will protect the health of people in Hawaii. So as a community physician, you know, I support the decision. I know it's a difficult decision, but at the same time, I know there's other groups in Hawaii, especially the turret-based employers and employees that desperately need to get back to to work. That's probably the hardest job in the state right now, as the governor, and making those decisions. So, you know, I support his his decision, and I think going forward, we all just try to do the best we can in our respective roles to respond to this. And you know, the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency is still, you know, going full bore as far as the preparedness and the planning and contingencies. And we still need to make sure our hospitals don't go get overrun. You know, two of my personal patients in my in my medical practice have COVID, and they're still both in the hospital. One of them's out of the ICU now. She was in the ICU for two or three weeks. They did a great job at one of the Oahu hospitals of saving her life and I think she'll be discharged within a week or so. But she'll have probably spend a month in the hospital by the time she gets discharged. I have another patient currently in the ICU at one of the Oahu hospitals. Both are older patients, but they're very sick and I you know and, and I do go to most of the hospitals on Oahu and I see the census of COVID positive patients is increased. It's about, in my opinion, probably double from what it was last week. So the hospitalized COVID patients is increasing. And so I know when people look at the daily COVID numbers, there's sometimes a question of, oh, is it just because we're doing more testing? And part of that is because we're doing more testing. But when I look at the people who are hospitalized, when that group is increasing, then, you know, it's very clear that there's just more COVID in the community. So without a doubt, I can say there is more COVID in the community. Definitely we're not overwhelmed uh, like some of the hospitals in Houston or Florida right now that nobody ever wants to get to that point. And the intensive care physicians who are doing such a great job here in Hawaii, taking care of these patients and saving them, part of their ability to do so well is not having an overwhelmed ICU. And so by limiting the number of infections and limiting the surges, that really l- helps them save the people they can because the scenarios I'm seeing or I saw in New York They had every single ICU bed full of patients on the ventilator with COVID. The ERs, rather than just regular ER patients, were full of patients on the ventilator with COVID. And they were really overwhelmed. It's hard to give people an individualized um, care and a highly attentive care when the hospital is totally overrun with COVID patients on ventilators. There's just too many patients to give that personalized attention to. And, and save as many people as you can so I think strategies that of any 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 jurisdiction that focus on preventing surges ultimately um, saves lives
0: that was dr. Jim Ireland talking about our preparedness across the state uh, any decision about use of additional testing equipment at the airport would likely uh, be made uh, with consultation with the S- uh, State Department of Health And we now go to the BBC with the latest COVID-19 news as California re-enters a statewide shutdown and face masks become mandatory in all English shops and markets.
2: This is the coronavirus global update on Tuesday the 14th of July. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. The most populated state in the US goes back into lockdown. Face masks are to become compulsory in English shops and supermarkets and the shock tactic being used to enforce social distancing at a pub. Sweeping restrictions have been reimposed in the U.S. state of California following a sharp rise in coronavirus cases. Governor Gavin Newsom banned all indoor activities in restaurants, bars, entertainment venues and museums with immediate effect.
1: One thing I just think is incredibly important to remind all of you uh, is that this virus is not going away anytime soon. Um, I hope all of us... Uh, recognise that if we were still connected to some notion that somehow when it gets warm, uh, it's going to go away
2: or somehow it's going to take summer months or weekends off, uh, this virus has done neither. Just months ago, California was touted as a COVID miracle for managing to keep the number of infections relatively low despite its big cities. But it's recorded nearly 16,000 cases in the past two days. So what went wrong? Dr. Robert Wachter runs the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco.
1: It was appropriate to begin easing the restrictions. We were doing so well and uh, things seemed under control. And so the restrictions were eased. But I think people took that as uh, as the starting gun for changing the behavior too much. And I think too many people got a little bit complacent. It
2: is a similar story in Iran, where the government is reimposing lockdown measures. Here's Rana Rahimpour from the BBC Persian service.
3: Restrictions are announced in at least 10 provinces because the authorities say that the situation is very alarming. Very similar to many young people in California, the Iranian youth are not following the procedures that the government has asked them to, that many of them are not wearing um, face masks. And a deputy um, a health minister said that there are many weddings and family gatherings. And that's one of the main reasons why uh, the virus is spreading so fast.
2: Controls have also been reintroduced in the southern Indian city of Bengaluru. For the next week, transport will be banned except for emergencies, and only shops selling essential items will be allowed to open in the city, described as the Silicon Valley of India. President Macron of France has signalled that face masks will soon become compulsory in enclosed public spaces, given concerns about rising infections.
4: We must continue to apply these barrier gestures, and on this we see some weaknesses. So I have asked for us to pass a measure in government and I hope that in the coming weeks we'll have made face masks mandatory in all enclosed public
2: places. Meanwhile, the British government has said it will make the wearing of face masks compulsory in English shops and supermarkets from next week. Jessica Parker has the details.
0: Failure to follow the rules under public health law could result in a fine of up to £100. Shop workers will be asked to encourage compliance, but enforcement will be carried out by the police, a move welcomed by the British Retail Consortium. But the industry body has asked for clarity on whether staff must wear masks if they are already, for example, working behind a Perspex screen.
2: Scientists advising the UK government say a second wave of coronavirus infections this winter could result in more deaths than the first, with 120,000 hospital fatalities a reasonable worst-case scenario. Here's Dr William Bird.
4: This could happen and it would happen if we don't do much. So the things that we can do... The test and trace is clearly got to be really uplifted and made sure it's working very, very well. It's worked in other countries, we know that. And I think all the scientific evidence is if we get that right, it will really, really help in stuffing out those outbreaks.
2: The authorities in Tokyo are urging some 800 theatre-goers to get tested for COVID-19 after a venue in the Japanese capital was found to be the source of a new cluster of infections. The 190 seat theatre is located in a busy entertainment district where cases have also been found in cabaret clubs. Japan has reported a spike in COVID 19 infections in recent days, but it's still opening up parts of the economy. Finally, a pub in southwest England has introduced a rather unusual and some might say shocking way of enforcing social distancing. Johnny McFadden is a farmer and the owner of the Star Inn.
4: I didn't know what to do to keep people back from the bar. We live in a rural area. Everybody knows what an electric fence is, so uh, I put one in the bar. People are like sheep. Works for the sheep, works for the people.
2: They'll catch on. More pubs will do it. Johnny McFadden, and that's it from the Coronavirus Global Update.
4: Port for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. HonoluluHabitat.org
0: Next time on The World, a new film about the Iraq War, told by Iraqis who lived through it.
4: Right after the invasion, one of the very few jobs that you can do in Iraq is to work as a translator. I was ready to work for a dollar, and they are like... Would uh, $50 be okay?
0: People from different parts of Iraq remember the hope and tragedy of the 2003 U.S. invasion. That's next time on The World.
5: Starting this afternoon at 1.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art reopening with safety in mind on July 16th, offering reconnections to the art courtyards and the museum community with new weekend evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org.
0: This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. <laughs> For today's Backyard Quiz, we go to Maui. The uh, Makawao Union Church was founded by missionary Jonathan Smith Green in 1861. About 10 years later, Henry Perrine Baldwin, who co-founded Alexander and Baldwin with his brother-in-law, joined the church and served as its organist for 40 years. In 1888, Baldwin offered a site for a new building on the foundation of the old Paliuli sugar mill. The new church, a New England-style white frame structure, was completed in 1889, and the grounds of the old church became the cemetery. In the early 20th century, the church raised that building and constructed a constructed a stone church. It was designed by Charles W. Dickey, who happened to be a distant relative of Baldwin's wife. Our question today, what year was this third stone Makawao Union church built? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com.
0: A number of bills passed by the state legislature Friday on their final day of session are now set to go before the governor for his review. HPR's Ryan Finnerty uh, joins us this morning to talk about measures that passed and some that didn't.
6: Well, Catherine, as we've talked about before, the main focus of this last three-week session of the legislature was to pass financial assistance related to the ongoing pandemic. They divvied up $600 million in federal assistance, and that will go to things like supplementing unemployment, providing assistance to renters, and health screenings at airports. They also gave the governor final approval to borrow up to $2 billion in order to cover the state's budget shortfall. Uh, in the uh, event that that shortfall grows because of the ongoing recession. When it comes to non-virus-related measures, there were some significant accomplishments not related to the pandemic. A bill requiring more transparent reporting from police agencies passed, uh, and that had a lot of fanfare and a lot of discussion in the media. Lawmakers also approved funds to expand state-run child care and early childhood education. That had gotten a lot of attention in the beginning of the session. And in a major win for farmers, the legislature created a legal pathway for commercial hemp cultivation. That's something that's already underway in other states. And folks may remember that the governor vetoed that last year in the 2019 session, uh, so that they will now have a way to begin growing hemp and selling it commercially. The lawmakers also expanded paid family leave to cover grandchildren. That's only for people whose employers already offer paid family leave as a benefit. I didn't expand paid family leave broadly. Um, and there, there was another one that uh, caught my eye that hasn't gotten as much attention. But they passed uh, a ban on employer-employer-employee uh, non-disclosure agreements that cover sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. So. Uh, employers can no longer require signing a non disclosure agree- dis- agreement as a condition of employment that covers sexual, her- sexual assault or harassment in the workplace. Um, and there were also some wins for government ethics advocates. The legislature passed a 12 month ban on lobbying for lawmakers and senior government officials after they leave government service, and that would take effect once they, they exit office. The legislature also passed a ban on outside paying jobs for the governor and the four county mayors while they're in office. This got some attention a few months ago. It's called the Emoluments Bill, and that prohibition would take effect ahead of the 2022 election.
0: I know the lawmakers had talked about wanting to do something with vaping. They wanted to try and help the situation with Young Brothers, but was there anything else noteworthy that didn't pass?
6: Yeah, I mean, the biggest things, and and I'm sure uh, you remember and you covered it, was uh, that back in January, as the session was beginning, the the legislative leaders in both chambers and the governor produced this major effort uh, to reduce Hawaii's cost of living. um, And that was going to do things like raise the minimum wage, cut taxes for working families and expand social spending, uh, particularly in the realm of uh, childcare and pre-K. Those proposals were almost completely derailed by the pandemic recession, which created a $2 billion hole in the state budget. Um, a lot of those measures would have required extra government spending, and, and leaders in the legislature just decided that uh, that wasn't really something they could do uh, responsibly, given the, the current situation and the current decline in tax revenues and, and the other expenses facing the state from rising unemployment. There was that one major, uh, major-ish measure from that package that we mentioned earlier that did pass, and that was the expansion of public child care, uh, increased funding for that. Um, and our colleague, Ashley Mizuo, has reported on that previously uh, and can find her stories that provide more in-depth look at that. Lawmakers of the House, also in the House, stopped to the passage of two noteworthy bills on the last day, Um, One would have banned high-capacity magazines for firearms, that's magazines that could carry more than 10 rounds. And another bill that would have created a statewide regulatory framework for the ride-hailing services, Uber and Lyft. Those are currently regulated at the county level in Hawaii, and they have kind of different requirements on different islands, and this sought to give them a, a uniform standard uh, but ultimately didn't pass.
0: And, you know, do you have any indication uh, from the governor's office, uh, you know, on where he stands on these things? Any idea? I know he's got some time to veto, but any clue yet?
6: No, he, uh, he hasn't said one way or another. He said that his office with the attorney general will be doing a legal review of all the bills to make sure that they're, uh, they're sound and won't create any, any problems legally and that also the administration agrees with the policy direction. The governor has 35 working days to announce what bills he intends to veto. So that brings him to the end of August. So we should know more uh, next month as that deadline approaches, um, what he plans to to sign or allow become law or exercise his veto power on.
0: And then uh, I guess if lawmakers decide they want to override something, they can do that later uh, this year.
6: Yeah, they would have to come back for a special session to do that.
0: All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Ryan
6: thing, Catherine.
0: We've been talking with HPR's Y-Infinity about the legislative wrap.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Learn seven ways to save water at BoardOfWaterSupply.com.
6: We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Members supported Hawaii Public Radio helped keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio.
0: Our reality check segment with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat highlights a survey of Hawaii residents uh, about, you know, their feelings with the coronavirus restrictions. Uh, reporter Eleni Gill on the line with us. Good morning, Eleni. Aloha. So who, uh, what prompted this survey? Who's behind it? Uh, so the University
5: of Hawaii's Public Policy Center um, distributed this online survey and got about 600 people to respond. Uh, it was conducted between May and June, Sort of around the time when we saw a lull in uh, COVID 19 cases here in Hawaii. Um, but the purpose of this survey was to really assess how people, Hawaii residents in particular, um, were feeling about the types of COVID 19 restrictions that were put in place, um, and the policies that had been enacted, um, and see if any of them would be willing to do them again if another surge of cases. Um, would come. And at the time, about two-thirds said that they did predict another wave of infections would indeed come here to the islands. And if and when it did, that they would be willing to do some of these restrictions over again in the name of public health. Um, But they also talked a little bit about the things that they would prefer the state not to do again or things they'd like to change or things they'd like to see a little bit differently handled. So
0: what were they willing to do?
5: So, you know, I think some of the measures people were willing to do included masks in public, um, you know, the shutting down of vacation rentals and uh, stopping outdoor team sports, uh, restricting dining at restaurants, um, and even, you know, school or child care closures. People said they understood the need to do those sorts of things. Um, but there were other rules that folks, didn't think were particularly worth it um some of those were barring non-covid medical visits of uh, a lot of folks were talking about how their health was impacted by covid and how it was difficult for them to um, not go to the doctor for certain things and, and that fear of you know going to the hospital so that was one impact for sure um other folks were saying that they we didn't see the need to restrict activity on public beaches, um, and, you know, having these rules against going shopping. Um, so it's definitely a mixed bag. The survey report breaks all of these, um, responses down. Um, one other thing I'd mentioned though, is that a lot of folks didn't, um, really think we should have an inter-island, uh, quarantine for travelers necessarily, um, I guess it depends on the situation and how severe an outbreak would be. Um, but that was one thing that a lot of folks frowned upon.
0: Okay. And then uh, any other, uh, I don't know, information that they gleaned just on, you know, who uh, responded to that survey?
5: Yeah, it was a, a wide variety of responses, um, you know, folks from all walks of life. And they even, because this was an online survey, people could write freely about how they felt and some even gave their own ideas and suggestions, as you know, like rotating business hours or encouraging um, curbside pickup from certain stores. So, uh, you know, some folks were wondering why the small businesses had to shut down, but you know, larger big box stores could stay open. So, um, there was discussion about how to improve that. Um, but another major takeaway was uh, how clear uh, the anxiety around tourism still is because, in about 81% of folks said they did not want tourists visiting their community right now um and of course it's important to note that you know initially there were many cases among residents who traveled outside of hawaii and you know now the majority of the cases are considered community spread but um you know when the survey asked folks what could hawaii have done better the top two answers involved more restrictions on tourism and um, more effective quarantine enforcement and a lot, a lot of folks actually said they would like to see some changes to our tourism industry before we lift the quarantine.
0: Um,
5: and so Colin Moore, who directs the UH Public Policy Center, said that was a, a pretty eye-opening takeaway. Because um, even people who might even work in the tourism industry who are dependent on tourists, um, said they're still not really ready for um, visitors to come back to Hawaii.
0: Yeah. All right. Really interesting snapshot. But thanks so much, Eleni. Thank you.
5: Take care.
0: That was reporter Eleni Gill with today's Reality Check. You can read her story about the survey online at civilbeat.org. The daily update on new COVID cases in Hawaii continues to pull in higher counts than we're used to. And we got this email from a Honolulu listener. Part of the reason for the recent increases in COVID-19 positive cases here in the state of Hawaii is because some employers are refusing to allow staff to telework. Staff around the state have been called back after the end of the lockdown using the same work schedules from before the pandemic. Employers need to take more drastic measures to enforce physical distancing by staggering work schedules into the evening and weekend hours plus allowing one or more days of telework per staff, including supervisors and clerks. We also heard from listeners following last week's uh, call-in show on masking mandates when Dr. Omori, the infectious disease officer for the city and county of Honolulu, talked about how to deal with joggers who run without masks. Kevin and Inkalihi had this to say, Dr. Omori stated that because the runner wasn't running continually alongside the walker and the encounter was very brief, that the runner did not need to wear a mask as there was no likelihood of infection. However, a July 6 piece on NPR explained that hundreds of scientists had sent a letter to the World Health Organization describing uh, the very real possibility that the virus could uh, aerosolize and be spread by very small particles that remain floating in the air the so-called aerosol spread was reported on before july 9th in other news outlets different viewpoints on this issue and another listener danette kong from Kula, shared this my sister has been very conscientious when wearing her mask disinfecting surfaces using hand sanitizer etc especially when she shops and does errands for another high-risk sister who has stayed home since march so we were all very surprised when she came down with a different virus a couple of weeks ago. The only memory she had of being around anyone with illness while she, was, she and her husband were out uh, walking outdoors here on Maui a few days before her symptoms showed up. They heard someone coughing behind them, a runner who was not masked, and who passed them while coughing. I would suggest that especially those athletes who are exhibiting, exhibiting any symptoms be required to wear masks or not be out in the public at all. ha. Good luck with that one. Thanks for the feedback. Email us here at talkback at hoypublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line 792-8217. We go to upcountry Maui today and visit a historic church for our backyard quiz. Uh, Missionaries established the Makawao Union Church more than 150 years ago. However, the stone building that stands today is the church's third building. Renowned architect Charles W. Dickey designed the church, and it was constructed in the early 20th century. The walls were built of reinforced concrete with a native basalt lava rock veneer with a slate-covered roof imported from Vermont. The church did reuse elements from the previous church, including four stained-glass windows and the bell. A Seth Thomas clock faces out on the Norman-style tower. The building is called the Makawao Union Church Henry Perrine Baldwin Memorial, which was named after an influential member. In 1885, it was listed on both the Hawaii Register of Historic Places and the National Register of Historic Places. Today, Reverend Robin Lund presides over a church that calls itself an interdenominational community church with congregational heritage. Services are still held at that church, which was, which was built in nineteen sixteen, which was the answer we were looking for to uh, for today's quiz. Uh, no winners, and that is the quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at The U.S. Navy's War Games, the Rim of the Pacific Exercise, or RIMPAC, are set to start August 17th. It's held every two years in Hawaii and brings dozens of countries and thousands of troops in for training. In 2018, 26 nations and 25,000 personnel participated with exercises in and around the islands from the end of June to the beginning of August. Now, the state has estimated the exercise provides a $50 million and economic impact. Uh, into Hawaii. Now, due to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, things have been scaled down and delayed with uh, at-sea exercises only for two weeks. However, there are still those concerned about RIMPAC. Here's Congressman Ed Case on RIMPAC when we spoke with him back in April.
1: I did not agree with those that believed we should cancel RIMPAC altogether. RIMPAC is an incredibly important joint exercise between us and our allies. That is absolutely necessary our country's national defense uh, in in the Pacific, and the Indo-Pacific, and so um, there were major consequences to not conducting a RIMPAC at all.
0: A joint effort called Cancel RIMPAC Coalition has come together to oppose the military exercise. The group currently has an online petition with more than 11,000 signatures calling for that cancellation. The conversation's Jason Ubay spoke with co-organizers Tina Grandinetti and Kavena Kapahua, as well as Anne Wright, a retired Army colonel and former diplomat who is now with the group. We'll start with Anne.
7: As a retired Army colonel and a person who has been in the military for 29 years and has done a lot of exercises, I would say that uh, the RIMPAC is uh, one of the exercises that you look at it and you go, holy smoke, this is crazy. I mean, you got 50 ships, submarines, all this sort of stuff. What they're doing is just bringing together lots and lots of military equipment kind of for their own pleasure is the way i look at it very seldom that you ever ever have any fleet like this and when you look i think at the battle maneuver plans for the navy having this many ships off a coast which would probably be china because that's where the u.s seems to have its latest enemy uh having 50 ships off there it is a, a very very strange thing i think and uh, uh, it certainly is the epitome of enticing a war if you would ever get that many ships together. And I'll just mention that yes, right now there are two uh, aircraft carriers and their associated ships that are off China and the South China Sea. So. The U.S. Is, is building up towards something, and we certainly hope it's not war. But these military maneuvers, these war practices that they want to have off the Hawaiian waters are definitely something that can precipitate armed conflict.
8: My name's Kovana Kapahua. So Representative Case says there's consequences to not holding RIMPAC. There's consequences to holding it as well. We're in the, t- we're in the time of a global pandemic. And, you know, bringing together, like Anne said, that many military personnel from that many different countries, especially right now, as the world is seeing a major spike of COVID-19 cases, especially in the United States, uh, it offers a really catastrophic opportunity for Hawaii to suffer the consequences of the poor pandemic response management that other places have seen whereas we've been able to kind of mitigate it here. Just just in the past couple of days, there was that major uh, case total of about 41 new cases in a day. And Hawaii News Now reported that at least three of those came from a Navy ship, and 20 more of those were in quarantine. And that's just one ship. There will be mul- many, many more coming to Hawaii. And if things start to reopen here, there's a large possibility that you know those cases from Navy vessels and military personnel could spread into the
4: community. I understand that RIMPAC has been postponed and it's only going to be offshore. sounds like you're concerned that they're not going to be able to keep everyone just on their ships. They're going to have to be on the base at some point. This is Tina Grandinetti.
3: That's a a huge concern, and it's not an unfounded one. It's not a hypothetical one. Um, We have been working closely with activists in Guam, and we can see from what happened there with the USS Theodore Roosevelt that the idea that RIMPAC can be an at-sea-only event, the military can't guarantee that. And that's because these Navy ships have been shown to be incubators for the virus. You know, people are being held in close quarters for long periods of time. And on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, thousands of them ended up having to be quarantined um, off of the ship on Guam, and, and then in civilian hotels. So that means that if a ship, if an outbreak were to occur on a ship during RIMPAC, those personnel would have to come on shore, and our community would have to bear the responsibility for medical care, quarantining, um, and if it happens the way that it has with Guam, our hotel workers, our working-class people, our working-class families are going to have to um, carry that burden. The Cancel RIMPAC Coalition kind of started when, in response to the pandemic, um, a lot of us are educators, demilitarization activists, environmentalists from the community. And when we first started this, we kind of assumed that the U.S. military and our public officials would make the right decision and cancel it. We didn't think that this was going to have to be a long-term organizing effort. Um, We thought this year in 2020, it's really clear that um, we need to keep our community safe and save those kinds of resources for actual pandemic response. But that hasn't been the case. You know, we've seen the restriction of the RIMPAC exercises to an at-sea event and they've been postponed and shortened, but postponing in the middle of a pandemic isn't going to be over anytime soon. So pushing the exercises back a month, we're still facing the same problems. But I think as we've been doing this work, we are also mindful that outside of the urgency of the pandemic this year in 2020, we also are working towards a demilitarized future for Hawaii in 2020 and beyond. So cancel RIMPAC in 2020, but let's move towards a future where we cancel it forever. And that echoes calls for From our community, talking about uh, diversifying our economy—you know, away from dependence on tourism—we we we can also start thinking about diversifying our economy away from a dependence on the U.S. military, and U.S. imperialism.
4: Demilitarized future, I think for some people, sounds either a long ways off or it's a very tough battle to fight because it's such a large institution. But there's been protests in the past that have shifted and canceled some events and activities. Can you talk about that?
8: So there's been a long, you know, the military has for a long period of time in Hawaii tried to uh, set itself as a partner with the community despite the fact that there have been numerous incidents of its, uh, its trainings and exercises and activities being ha- actively harmful. Ko'olabe is just one instance of this, you know, with the bombing of an island that holds a very special place in Hawaiian culture. And in fact, Ko'olave one of the major parts of the Ko'olabe struggle was RIMPAC. You know, uh, it was used as a target during the RIMPAC exercises, back during the when that struggle was active, and multiple countries pulled out of bombing it in solidarity with Hawaiians who are standing up for our rights and, you know, to protect that land. In addition to this, you know, there's a lot of other instances of, you know, the military misusing its position in our community, whether it's the Red Hill oil tanks, or you know some of the bombing of like Makua, Makua Valley, or Pohakuloa, There's been a lot of instances of you know the harmful effects military militarism has in Hawaii and just the damage it does not only to the land and to the community, but also you know with impact. Uh, the Hawaii Commission on the Status of Women has done many uh, studies in recent years about the links between militarism in Hawaii and the rise of sex trafficking. You know it ha- there's it's the effects on the community and the consequences of a reliance on the military economy, is not just based on the damage it does to our environment. It does real damage to our communities.
3: Tina Grandinetti again. I also want to point out that demilitarization can sound like an unattainable goal, or in Hawaii especially, sometimes our imaginations are really limited. But this is a conversation that's happening globally. The pandemic has especially made it clear that taking care of our global community goes beyond ideas of national defense. And so the United Nations has called for a global ceasefire. Nearly two dozen Democrats in Congress signed a letter to the House Armed Services Committee calling for a reduction in defense spending during COVID nineteen. So I feel like even beyond Hawaii's shores, people are having this conversation because we're we're realizing, right, that you can't protect yourselves from a virus with bombs. You can't prepare for peace by funding war. You can't take care of your communities if you're spending so much of your budget on the military-industrial complex. I feel like it's important to point out that we were seeing our leaders taking leadership on this issue. We saw um, a resolution move through the city council calling um, on EA to a request that the U.S. Pacific Fleet cancel RIMPAC. All of the mayoral, Honolulu mayoral candidates, said they would support a call to cancel RIMPAC. The resolution through the city council was pulled, and I feel like that's because of the Pacific Fleet's decision to limit, postpone, and um, restrict RIMPAC to an at only event. And, you know, those are good first steps, But and it and it was encouraging to see that some of our leaders are being more critical and taking this time to think about the impacts that the military will have on and and RIMPAC will have on their constituents. But it was, it was frustrating to see that that move to an at only event kind of sucked the air out of the room because that's not enough. It's a compromise, but I just want to point our attention to Guam again and say that we are still in danger. That decision still puts our community at increased risk of elevated cases of COVID-19.
8: And in addition, addition to those things, you know, um, right now we're seeing uh, a lot of where the state had planned on reopening tourism in August, uh, which again is the same month RIMPAC has been postponed till, but now we're seeing almost all of our elected officials show major signs of concern over reopening tourism. Uh, and, you know, letting people back to the state without quarantining and anything like that. Um, and, you know, if, if, if we're concerned about tourism, the uh, influx of military personnel into Hawaii will be extremely concerning. You know, one of the things about this at the only kind of narrative that's being, uh, or title that's being pushed, is it's misleading, you know. Um, and I think Anne can speak better to this, but these kind of large military exercises require large uh, logistics teams on the ground to make sure that the ships have support and they have, you know, the munitions they need, the fuel they need, the food, all those kind of things. And those people are going to be, have to be brought in, and they're going to be landing. You know, they're not going to be at sea. Those logistics, those logistics teams are going to be staying on shore. Um, and so, you know, this, the idea that it's only going to be at sea, these ships at some point are going to have to come in and dock for fuel and munitions and all these things. And they're going to be having to have contact with people on the ground once again.
7: We estimate that each one of the nations that is going to participate in RimPac will have a minimum of uh, 50 logistics and commanding and patrol persons who will be uh, on the ground in Hawaii to coordinate the, the, you know, the day-to-day activities of the ship that's out to sea. So, if there are 20 countries that are part of that, 50 for each one of them. Uh, then you've got a thousand people right there, and they have to fly in someplace. And most of them will not fly in on military aircraft from with their countries. They'll be coming in commercially. And if any of them get sick, uh, they probably will. Will some of them will arrive in our civilian hospitals? Uh, definitely into the military hospitals. And the primary workers in our military hospitals are not military. We have a large contingent of civilian doctors and nurses that staff, even the military hospitals. So the, the contact that people would be having uh, should they bring in to, uh, the COVID-19 uh, will be with our communities.
8: Also, it should be noted that you know we're requiring travelers in general who come to Hawaii, be them residents or tourists, they have to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, the state announced that military personnel on so-called official business would be exempt from that. So some of like, people who would be coming into, you know, on military personnel coming into Hawaii wouldn't have to follow that quarantine order that has been at least somewhat effective in limiting the spread of coronavirus in Hawaii.
0: I was Kavana Kapua, uh, Tina Grandinetti, and Anne Wright of the Council RIMPAC Coalition. To learn more about the petition, visit hawaiipublicradio.org. Uh, we did reach out to the U.S. Navy for comment on the group's concerns but have yet to hear back. And that's a wrap. Tomorrow we talk about food sanitation rules, mass physical distancing, and all that during this, these COVID times. You have a recent uh, restaurant experience to share. Call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Be back tomorrow for more of the conversation.